You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Welcome, my name's Tim. We've been um, going through the book of Philippians as a church. We've had a break from it for about four weeks for various reasons. Fantastic weeks we've had, but we're going to jump back into it today. So it's, uh, it's in the New Testament. It's towards, right towards the back of the Bible. It's a letter, and I thought it would be uh, quite helpful maybe to just help to, to, to bring to attention that we know this church. We recognize this church. Last year, we went through the book of Acts, and in chapter 16... Paul went to Philippi and uh, saw three people come to faith in Jesus. First was a lady called uh, Lydia. She was quite a, um, a wealthy lady. She ran a business and she was a business her, her, her and her whole household came to faith in Jesus. Another person was this, uh, this girl who was under the, 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 uh, an attack from a, a spiritual demon who, who gave her an ability to, to kind of be a soothsayer, to to tell people's fortunes. And she was a slave girl, and she was um, used by the, her owners as a business to tell people's fortunes. Uh, and when Paul and Silas saw her, they cast the demon out of her, and then she, was, she couldn't do this anymore. Uh, so she was freed from the demon, but her, her owners were not very happy because their business model was broken. And so they got very frustrated and ended up getting Paul and Silas put into prison. And then while they're in prison... Uh, God sends a, a mighty earthquake to break their chains and, uh, and to break down the walls, and they're able to just walk out of prison on their way out. The guard is about to kill himself because he says, if they're just going to walk out, that's the one job I had to do. I failed it. I may as well kill myself before the authorities get hold of me because I'm going to be in big trouble. But the Paul and Silas, they say, no, don't wait. And they talk to him. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got these three people in Philippi and, and maybe their households who come to know Jesus. And now you've got Paul writing to the church in Philippi. So that gives you an idea of who he's writing to. He's writing to these people who had become Christians. This is the beginning of the church from Acts 16, this church. So he's writing this letter. He's writing it from prison again. He's in prison again. Paul, I think, is his second home, his prison. And uh, he wants to encourage the church. He's got real affection for them. He's writing to tell them news. He's saying that Epaphroditus, one of his friends, is, is over his sickness. He's doing well. Uh, he wants to say to them, I'd love to come and see you, but I'm a bit stuck at the moment. Maybe I can send Timothy and Epaphroditus to come. Uh, he wants to encourage them in their faith. He wants to lift their faith and stir them. Keep making progress. You're doing so well. Keep going. And if we look at the other letters that Paul wrote to the other churches, the Philippian church, by contrast, is a pretty healthy church. It's doing very well. So you might say, well, Paul, why bother? Why bother writing a letter? They're doing pretty well. Concentrate on the other ones. That are, you know, they're messed up with some of their theology and messed up with some of their activities. But he says, no, no, you are way too precious, and God is way too precious, and there are things out there that will want to pull you to the left and the right, and I want to warn you. I want to encourage you in your faith. He wants to encourage us in our faith through this. It's a letter of encouragement, a letter of warning, a letter of love. And he actually wants to thank them as well because they have been loyal to him. They've supported him even when he's been in prison because they could be kind of, you know, there's a stigma around that. They could say, oh, let's just distance ourselves from Paul because he keeps going to prison. But no, he's saying thank you because you've been loyal to me. You've supported me through this. So last we heard, 
from, from Tom was in chapter 3, where we are today. And he, he did the first half of chapter 3, and he spoke about the confidence that we can have before God through the grace of Jesus Christ. He spoke where Paul was warning them to not be caught up by the mutilators of the flesh. And what he was saying by that was people who circumcise. Don't be caught up with people who still think that we need to go by the law of the Old Testament. The laws that you have always been part of have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, he's saying. So you don't need to uh, eat certain food. You don't need to have your hair a certain way, long, uh, long uh, sideburns. You don't have to do that sort of thing. You, you don't have to circumcise, thank God. And so... Especially at an old age. Sometimes I did that. Okay, let's move on. Uh, you are free from the law, he is saying. So don't get pulled back into it. Don't get into that. In fact, Paul was really angry about this. He Remember Tom said, he said, if they're going to circumcise themselves, why don't they just go the whole way and castrate themselves? He was really angry about it. I mean, I wouldn't say that to people. So I want to talk today about two ways to avoid Jesus. Two ways to avoid Jesus. And this was the first way that we could avoid Jesus. Legalistic avoiders of God. These are people who say, yeah, maybe Jesus is all good and well, but don't forget, you also need to behave a certain way. You also need to have your hair a certain way. You also need to eat this food. They're saying, Jesus, okay, but Jesus plus this. Don't forget this, this, and this. Paul's saying, no, just Jesus. He has done enough. He has obeyed the law And he has died on our behalf. A legalistic person would say pretty much, I don't need Jesus because I'm going to go on my own. I'm going to get God in my debt because I'm going to behave so well. I'm going to be a good person. And a good person, God owes us. If I'm a good person, he owes me heaven. He owes me me blessing. He owes me favor. And basically someone who's legalistic is saying, I can do this on my own. Paul, uh, not Paul, Tom last week talked about the Tower of Babel. And it's a pretty good visual picture of it. These people literally said, let us build a tower ourselves up into heaven. We can do it ourselves. We can bypass God altogether and just build a big tower. We'll get there on our own. How foolish were they? How do you think after a few weeks, oh, we need another ladder. We've got about 60 foot. Now we look at these towers in Dubai and we think, wow, they almost look like they are in the heavens. I don't think they got anywhere near that and still... They're totally deceived. They can think, we can think that we can do it through our performance. There's two big fallouts of this legalistic approach. First is you could be very good at it. You could perform really, really well. You could be very holy. You could be someone that a small group leader would love to have in their small group. Always comes, knows their Bible really well, can argue all the, the theology very well, serves people really well, does everything on the list. You perform really well. You know what the fallout is? You become self-righteous. Because my righteousness is what I'm hanging on to. My performance is what I'm hanging on to. So you're not gracious with people. You're not patient with people. You actually get annoyed because they're not up at your standard. Come on. We can do this. Stand up. Get on with it. So you get self-righteous because you're not willing to say, without Jesus, I'd be nothing. You're saying, I can get there through my performance. But at the other end of the spectrum is someone who could be terrible at it. I've probably been more like this, legalistic, trying to do things on my own and failing terribly. And where do you go? Self-loathing. Oh, I can't do it. I'm a terrible Christian. Oh, this is just, and you're just loathing yourself. You're under condemnation all the time. 
Neither of those things hold to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, that you're enough for me. Thank you, Jesus, that I stand in you. We've been singing songs. My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what my hope is in. That's what I stand on. I don't stand on, can I do enough on the treadmill? Oh, keep going. Keep God happy. No, it's secure. It's finished in Jesus. My hope is built on him. We sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. That's why we sing it. In Christ alone, my hope is found. That's the only one. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, sinking sand. Nothing else is worthy of standing on. I don't stand on anything else, just Christ. Tom told a story last, uh, last time we were in this book uh, of two separate days. Remember this? He said, one day you wake up, wake up with your alarm, you go have a coffee, you pray, you're in the Bible. It's a great time. You feel God's with you. You get into the car, but on your way to the car, you see your neighbor. Oh, hi, how are you doing? You have a good conversation. You feel like you've blessed them. You put your worship music on in the car. You have a, a sing song to Jesus. You enjoy his presence. You get to work. You're a good employee. You do your work really well. At lunchtime, somebody says, how was your weekend? You say, yeah, it was great. I went to church. And you witness to them. And on the way home, you're singing back with those worship songs again. You, you're loving and serving to the people that you live with. And in the evening, you pray and you think, I'm so confident of going to God now. I'm so confident because I've done so well today. He's going to listen to my prayer. He's pleased with me. And then Tom spoke about the next day. You might wake up late. You've missed your alarm. You stub your toe. Oof. You get grumpy. You maybe swear under your breath. You, 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 you practically run out the door with half your clothes on because you're running so late. Your neighbor says, oh, hi, morning. I'm, I'm busy. I'm late. You get to work, you're not a good employee, you're grumpy. Someone asks you, what did you do Sunday? You say, nothing. <laughs> then you go home, you're still grumpy, you're rude with your household. And in the evening, you've got small group, but oh, I can't be bothered to go today. Hasn't been a good day. And in, 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 at night time, you get into your bed and it suddenly hits you, I should probably pray. Suddenly, you've lost your confidence. Because your performance that day has been pretty bad. And Tom was making the point, on both of those days, your hope should be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You could perform well, you could perform terribly, but both of those days you need to be confident Jesus performed perfectly. And we stand in that. Now I was just thinking about this, and I was thinking, I think in some of us would sway either way, but I would probably think it's easier to have a terrible day and think, for some of us who have grown up with grace and believe grace, God, I thank you that even though I had a rubbish day, you love me anyway. Thank you that you are good to me, you're kind to me, and I just stand in Jesus now, and I beg you for mercy. And I think we'd be not too bad at that. I think some of us would probably find it harder to have the good day and still say at the end of the day, Jesus, I had a good day, but I thank you that I stand in your righteousness today. I stand in you today. Jerry Bridges is an American pastor and, uh, and author, and he says this, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Isn't that fantastic? He goes on to say, your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. God, understand this. Our hope is built in Jesus. And these, this is what Paul was saying, and Tom spoke about it a little bit. He's saying, be aware of those who say, go on your performance. You've got to keep up with the rules. You've got to do this, that, and the other. And they pull you away from Jesus. And pretty much you say, that. You go, I don't actually need Jesus now. I can avoid him. I can do it on my own. And it can lead to self-righteousness or self-loathing. And often self-loathing leads to giving up altogether. You just can't do it. 
So we're going to move on to verses 17 to 21. We're going to focus there for a little while. It says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Just, just before I move on, this sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? Imitate me, be like me. But actually, he's saying, look, you will have other options. People who don't walk with Jesus, imitate me because I am walking with Jesus. Imitate me because I am trying to imitate Jesus. So he's not, he actually has said earlier in this book, I haven't achieved it. I haven't achieved perfection. I'm not perfect. So he's not being arrogant. In fact, he calls himself the worst sinner sometimes. But he's saying, I'm trying to pursue Jesus. So imitate me in that. And I'd encourage you, if you think there are people that I know who are really good at something godly that I'm not great at. Maybe they're a great dad. Maybe they are a great mum or a good wife or husband. Maybe they are just good, good with their money. They are good with being generous. Maybe they're good with hospitality. And I would say, if you think, I want to grow in that, get around people that are good at it. It's a godly thing to imitate people who are trying to be godly and ask some questions and soak it up. It's a, it's a humble and a good thing to do. It says, verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Father God, we just thank you that we do stand in Jesus now. We stand forgiven, we stand free. We thank you that you said you came to bring freedom to the captives and liberate the slaves, Lord. And that is what you've, we've seen this morning. We stand in that, that we are liberated, we are free. And we thank you that we want to do what it says in verse 16 that we haven't seen, is to hold fast to that which we have obtained. We've obtained citizenship in heaven. We've obtained a relationship with Jesus. We need to hold fast to that. So I pray, speak to us this morning, God. Help us to have ears to hear and soft hearts that want to respond to what you're saying, Holy Spirit. Speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. I just encourage you, say, it, say a three-second prayer. Just say, God, speak to me today. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we preach grace in this church, the Bible, Good churches, they want to preach grace. So grace, God giving us what we don't deserve, freedom, the end to striving, resting in God's embrace. We've heard that today. So really, should we just sort of let go and let God now? Have you heard that before? In fact, can't we just do whatever we want? Jesus has paid the price. We've got our ticket to heaven Pretty much do whatever we want now. He's, he's got to forgive us, right? Well, there's some truth in some of those things. There's some truth that actually we could do whatever we wanted. We are free. But what we're talking about in this section, or what Paul's talking about, he warns them of enemies of the cross. Warns them, don't be like those people. They're enemies of the cross. What does he mean there? Well, he means this. If we've come to him through the cross, we've got to be consistent with that. We came to him through the cross we came to Jesus through the cross. We became free and liberated through the cross. We've got to be consistent with that. We can't, it would be a bit like me saying, I'm an enemy of my marriage. If I say, yeah, I've got the wedding, the wedding ring on. We, we got married and I see her occasionally, you know. I usually hang out with my girlfriend. Well, one of my girlfriends, you know. 
It would make no sense. It would totally undermine the marriage, wouldn't it? I would be an enemy of my marriage. And he's saying here, you're an enemy of the cross if you're undermining the cross by just saying, well, that was my inroad, and now I can do whatever I want. uh, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What does he mean by that? Well, Paul says to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he actually says to the Philippines, doesn't he? He says, for me to live is Christ now. I no longer live. My life is gone. My life was killed with Jesus on the cross. Thank God. Thank God, because I was a mess. I had no hope. I was full of sin, full of sickness, full of... I was cursed. And Jesus was cursed on the tree for my sake, so I wouldn't have to be. But I was crucified with him. I come to Jesus through the cross. How could I then just flippantly say, well, I'll do whatever I want now because I've got my ticket to heaven? He's saying, be aware of this. It doesn't add up. He says this scary thing. Their end is their destruction. And I read in the commentaries, and it doesn't mean they have a nasty life. It means eternal destruction. Matthew 7, 22, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew me. Sorry, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Isn't that a sobering thought? Isn't that terrifying? To think we could dupe ourselves and kid ourselves into... Yeah, I'm a Christian. Maybe I'm a Christian because when I get asked what religion I am on a form, I write Christian. And that's the extent of it. Or maybe I prayed a prayer once. Doesn't that make me a Christian? Or I was christened. That makes me a Christian. Jesus is saying, if I never knew you, I'll have to say, away from me. I think that Jesus is being sarcastic when he says they come to him and they say, Lord, Lord. Do you know what Lord means? It means I surrender to you. I bow down to you. I, 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 you're my Lord. You're over me. It's hypocrisy to come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? You know, aren't we chums? Can, can we get into heaven? I never knew you. We've got to be sobered by this from Paul here, saying their God is their belly. And he may have literally been talking about appetites of uh, their belly in terms of food, because apparently some of the people he might have been talking about were uh, just, just indulged in, in, in that way. But actually, he goes on to say their mind is set on earthly things. So it's fair enough for us to think he could be talking about any number of things. Their God is an appetite of their flesh, is their feelings. They just give in to their feelings, their desires. I just, I just go with my desires. That's my God. It could be something quite subtle. You could just be someone who's led by your feelings, and you, you don't actually separate your feelings from what is wise. Or it could be an obvious thing, like I'm a bit of a slave to sex, or I'm a slave to money. My appetite for money and power just is what I really live for. My appetite for popularity, maybe, or notoriety, respect. Maybe a sports team. Maybe family. Maybe a good thing like family. It's just, it's above God in my life, so it's my God, really. I mean, God, if it's between God and family, I'm going to choose family. If that's the case, then you're in danger. Maybe it's work. You're a bit of a workaholic. Maybe it's comfort. And comfort for all of us in our Western society is a huge danger when it comes to Christianity. 
I've lived in, in South Africa, in Cape Town, which is probably one of the most Western um, cities, maybe, in Africa, let alone countries. But you, you just see, it's so easy for them to acknowledge that there's a God because I think there's so much discomfort. There is such poverty. It's, they just know we need God. Something's not right. We need God. And we are sitting in our comfortable houses watching TV, and it's so easy for us in Western culture to think, I don't really need God. You can get caught up in it. And God, in his mercy, can shake us up in these things sometimes. He can take us through darkness or difficulty to shake us up, say, I want your attention, actually, because I love you too much to let you just waste your life, to let you just be in comfort your whole life. I haven't made you a Christian to be comfortable. I've made you a Christian to be on mission, to be advancing, to be growing more like my son, to be calling others to me. I've made you for certain things. So he may shake us up. I've been through some quite difficult times in the last years with, with depression. And I tell you what, I came out the other side of it knowing God and feeling that was a privilege. He took me through something dark and it was a privilege because I know God better now. I would rather have gone through it and, and be where I am now than not have gone through it and coasted and been okay. My father-in-law is battling cancer at the moment. He's had it for about eight months. And he said to us recently, my wife and I said, I wouldn't change it. I've learned to find God in this. It's met with God in a powerful way. Isn't that amazing? I wouldn't change cancer. Are you kidding? No, I've met with the living God. What would you rather have? A comfortable, boring life or meet with the living God? And before you feel too condemned in this, and you think, well, actually, sometimes I've, I've, I've got an issue with this area of my life, and I'm still fighting with it, and I'm grappling with it. He says they, they glory in their shame. So it's a bit different to just, I've got this sin that I do quite often, and I do tell people, and I'm praying about it, and I'm trying, but you know, I do stumble. That's different to someone who glories in their shame, like they have a seared conscience. You watch these hooligans at the, the football, and they, they, they've enjoyed getting involved with fighting. That's what they're living for. They're glorying in it. There's almost like a badge of honor. How many people did you knock out? You know, it's crazy. They're glorying in it. Their conscience is seared. And, and so just to say, it's not just sinning, oh dear, then you're against the cross. No, we, we're all on a journey. We're growing. But these people, be aware. If there's something that you're just blind to or people have said to you and you just say, no, they're wrong. No, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to that. If your minds are set on earthly things, that's what he's talking about. So I talked earlier about one way to avoid Jesus would be to say, I can do it on my own. I don't need Jesus. This is the other way. What I'm talking about now is to say, I prayed a prayer and it's God's job to forgive. So I don't really need Jesus. So it's licentiousness. Okay, I can do whatever I want because I'm in. I got my ticket. That's called legalism, that's called licentiousness. To say, I'll do whatever I want because I'm free. He's freed me, I can get on with it. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live as people who are free, yes, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. But living as servants of God. Jude 4 says, There are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I would say this was me in my teenage years, probably. Someone who, who grew up in a church of teaching of grace, and I thought, great, I've prayed the prayer, I'm in. I can pretty much do what I want uh, and totally ignore God. I can pervert grace, I can abuse grace, because he has to forgive me, right? That's his job. I'll tell you what, we need to have a healthy fear of God, don't we? 
we need to have a healthy fear of God. People actually say this, and you may have heard this. Isn't it God's duty to forgive? Isn't it his job? It's God's job to forgive, right? Do you know what God's job is? Acts 17.31 says, He has set a day when he will judge the world. He is a judge. He is not some Father Christmas in the sky, nice grandpa you can sit on his knee and he wouldn't hurt a fly. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. It says he is the lion of Judah. It says he is the judge that will come. If you look at Isaiah 6, I'm going to read it to you. Isaiah 6 is incredible. Isaiah is a prophet. He has a vision. He says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts. Does that sound like a Father Christmas in the sky? A pushover God? Sounds like a God we should be terrified of. We should have a healthy fear. And this is incredible. The next verse is probably the most incredible part. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. God has taken our sin away and atoned for our sin. He hasn't sent an angel with a coal. That was a picture. He sent his only son to die for us on a cross and take all of the sin so that we would be free and redeemed. How dare we then go, oh, I can walk all over him. We should be terrified of this. I don't know if any of you saw this interview that Stephen Fry had. Um, if you know Stephen Fry, uh, with an... Uh, I think it was an Irish TV program. It was an Irish host, anyway. And he asked Stephen Fry, if you were to die and meet God, what would you say to him? And he said, I would say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? He's, and I, and I sympathise, because he said, bone cancer in babies? How dare you? And he's really struggling with, I don't know what this life is, if there is a God. How does this happen? And there are sometimes in the Old Testament, I've read things and thought, What? God, you did that? But you know what my viewpoint and Stephen Fry's viewpoint in that misses out? The holiness of God. He he is to be feared, not questioned. When we get to face to face with God, none of us are going to point the finger. We're going to be on our faces, terrified. We're going to be like Isaiah. I'm terrified. I'm exposed. My child, um, I've got a a nine-week-old. And uh, it, lately in the evening sun, sometimes comes through the door and you can see it oh, trying to get away from it. And it just made me think, that's like the glory of God with Isaiah. Whoa, you have to f- cover your face. You know, you come out of the cinema and you, it's daytime. You're like, oh. But with God, it's not just, oh, that hurts my eyes a bit. It's that exposes my soul. That is terrifying. We can't dabble with sin and mess about with this God. He is the Lion of Judah. Do you know, I know somebody 
and I've heard a few stories a bit like this, who was dabbling with sin ongoing for four or five years. And he knew this was wrong, but he'd kind of given up and just thought, I don't see any way out of this. I'm just going to live for myself. And he was in ministry, in, in Christian ministry, full time. And one day he woke in the night terrified because he had a dream that was like hell. And he felt God was saying to him, if you don't repent now, you will die. Is that the sort of God we go, hmm, he's a laugh, isn't he? It's terrifying to mess with. You know, we, we read in uh, Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were not behaving themselves and God killed them. He took them. He is a God to be revered. So one way to avoid Jesus is to count on your own performance and say in your heart, God will owe me because of my performance being good enough. Another way is to avoid Jesus is to say in your heart, he's a light touch and he, he, he owes me forgiveness. But both ways deny ourselves, well, both ways deny the truth that he is a sovereign God that owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. But they both deny us a relationship with the living God. We miss out on a relationship with this merciful God who, yes, doesn't owe us anything, but has given us everything in Jesus Christ. He doesn't owe us anything, but he has poured out his blessing as we sang. Oh, the wonderful mercy. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of your mercy. May I never get used to it. It is incredible wonder. It can't be a cheap grace. It's costly. It's undeserved. And relationship with him is what he most wants. I've really learned this in the last few years. God wants me to meet with him and come to him whether I'm happy, sad, angry, bored, hungry. <laughs> Doesn't matter. He wants me to come to him. We can think, oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm sad or I haven't behaved well. I don't want to. He wants you any way you can. If you're a father in here, you know that's true. You don't care what your children have done. You want them to come to you, not hide from you. God is a gracious father. That's what he wants. That's what he's always wanted. He said, I will be their God. They will be my people. I will have a people for myself. That's what his goal is. He wants relationship with you more than anything. He sent his own son to die to make it, to hap- make it happen. And Paul finishes chapter 3 by reminding us of our citizenship in heaven. And the promise of a glorious future hope. Jesus Christ is coming in power to claim what is rightfully his and transform us to be like himself. Finally, we'll be fully like him. We can stop messing around in sinfulness. We can know, yes, I'm like Jesus now. He's coming to take us. So keep your minds set on heavenly things, not on earthly things like these people that Paul is talking about. Don't get caught up on earthly things. Keep your mind set on heavenly things. I don't know if you've ever been sitting in a room and... and probably a teenager, somebody would come in and say, I'm sitting there. And you're like, were you? What? They don't say, I was sitting there. They say, I'm sitting there. And you're like, oh, I better move then. What? And basically, they left the room, came back, and they found you in their seat. And they said, I'm sitting Oh, I get it. Do you know where we're sitting? We're sitting there. He says, he's, we are seated with him in heavenly places. We are sitting there with him. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. We don't get caught up in earthly things and striving for my selfishness and what can I get out of this and and, and focusing on me, me, me. But we focus on 
What's he called me to? I'm, my, I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm, I'm, I'm focused on that. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to enjoy that and I'm going to invest in that, not invest in this. It doesn't mean that we're you know, pig-headed and horrible to people because it doesn't matter, I'm going to heaven. Of course not. That's not what God's called us to. But we invest in heaven. Sometimes there's a long-distance marriage engagement. So sometimes during wartime or something, someone might get engaged, but then the, the bridegroom has to go away uh, to war. And during that time, the bride would be able to look at her wedding ring or her engagement ring and say, the promise is here. I've got the promise, and I know who I belong to. We need to remember, we've got the promise We know who we belong to. The bridegroom is coming back for his bride. We need to be excited about it, living in anticipation of it, enjoying the fact that we've got a doting bridegroom waiting to rescue us, to come in and sweep us up. We need to hold fast to what we have obtained in Jesus. That's the crux of this whole chapter. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't go to the right or to the left. Don't do it on your own. Don't ignore Jesus. Hold fast to him. With all you've got. Anyone who's been through any difficult time will probably come out the other side if they responded well to Jesus and say, hold fast to Jesus. That's what got me through. I held fast to Jesus. Just to finish up here in Colossians 3, 1 to 4, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things, excuse me, that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Perhaps some of you today need to repent of avoiding Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to stand on your own performance. Or maybe you've been perverting and abusing grace and doing whatever you want, thinking God's job is to forgive me. I want you to come to him today. Don't lose this opportunity. God is so kind that he delays judgment. He delays judgment. It's not that he's not a judge. He's delayed it to give people an opportunity to come to him in grace and mercy and find him. To humbly come to him and find grace and mercy. The person I was talking to you about earlier who had that dream in the night, their life was totally turned around by that. They they received God's grace and forgiveness They humbly came and repented to a number of people and they haven't looked back because now they're holding on to Jesus. I encourage you, do this. He owes us nothing, but he's given us everything. It should make our heart sing, shouldn't it? It should make our heart overflow with joy. He doesn't have to give me anything. In fact, what I deserve is judgment. What has he given me? Jesus. Can't get any better. It can't get any better. Father God, we thank you so much for your patience and grace upon us. We don't deserve it. Unfortunately, we know full well what we deserve, but you've given us incredible blessing. And we just so thank you for it. We're so grateful. Help us to not take it lightly. We thank you that you've delayed judgment to give us an opportunity to come to you and respond to you. We we pray, delay it more, Lord. Delay your judgment that many more would come to know you in Ipswich, in our families, around the world, that many more would come into this grace. And I do pray, forgive us, Lord. Help us to repent where we take you as a light touch, where we think we've got our ticket, it's all we need. 
forgive us, God. Forgive us as a, as a Western nation and culture. We just think God is a pushover. I have no fear of God. Lord, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Show us that you are a God to be feared, a God to be loved and adored. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.